Parenting and youth work these days hasn't gotten any easier. Both involve relating to and leading kids who have to navigate a difficult and confusing world. This means that as leaders, we have new challenges to navigate as well. Counselor and author Julie Lowe is no stranger to these difficulties, and we found her to be a source of great wisdom and guidance as we encounter tough situations. Stick with us as Julie answers many of the questions facing parents and youth workers in this rapidly changing youth culture on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, there's this verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 20, that's always been important to me, both personally and as I communicate it to students and even to youth workers. It says, uh, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. And so we need to be really careful about who we surround ourselves with and 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 choose people who, who can lead us and teach us well, people who have experience and who are deeply grounded in the gospel and can share wisdom and you know, one, one great gift we have in, in the world of the church today, some of the qualified Christian counselors who are out there as we, in our day-to-day lives, in our families, and in our youth ministries, as we face more and more difficult and complex situations, we can lean into these folks. They're a gift from God, and they can, they can lead us with some wisdom and guide us through that. And so today we're going to have a conversation with a counselor friend, Julie Lowe, who's been on our podcast before. Uh, Julie is a faculty member at the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, CCEF. We'll include a link to that very valuable and helpful organization that is all about biblical counseling uh, in the show notes for this particular podcast. She's an MA in counseling from Biblical Theological Seminary. She's a licensed counselor, has years and years of counseling experience. Uh, We've tapped into Julie's wisdom before. She counsels on matters of marriage, women's issues, sexual abuse, body image issues, parenting, child maltreatment, all sorts of things like that. You can find some very helpful videos from Julie on YouTube if you just search for her. And she also has written several books. Uh, One of the books that we've promoted here for years now is a parenting book called Child Proof, Parenting by Faith, Not Formula. She also has, and I want to hear about this, Julie, this book, Building Bridges. I've not seen it yet. It's subtitled Biblical Counseling Activities for Children and Teens, and I'm guessing that would be helpful for youth workers. And then a couple of uh, short little, they call them mini books from New Growth Press. We love these little books. They're very helpful for parents and youth workers. One's called Helping Your Anxious Child, What to Do When Your Worries Are Big, and then a brand new one that I've seen the text of this, and we're going to get it here and start sharing this with people, and we'll have Julie back to talk again in the future on this, Teens and Suicide, Recognizing the Signs and Sharing the Hope. So she lives with her husband, Greg. They have six children. They serve as foster and adoptive parents. They have a menagerie of animals at their home. I don't know if you've heard past podcasts with Julie or not, but there was a bird and crickets that visit us, visited us on that podcast in the past. And uh, Julie's in the Philadelphia area. So Julie, welcome. Thank you. That was a long introduction, but I wanted to set this up because I just, I I feel like what we're going to talk about today is so important and I want people to have the opportunity to to connect the dots with you in the future when the podcast is over to, to tap into some of your resources. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Always good to be with you guys. Hey, can I ask you right out of the gate, because when I was looking at what you've written, I haven't seen Building Bridges, that particular book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I know you do a lot of counseling with children and teens, and how would this be a great uh, resource for youth workers? Yeah, it was actually the book I was loving writing and looking forward to writing. Um, It's really, really good for youth ministry workers, children's ministry workers, anybody who works with children and teens, because it's just a very practical 
what are ways to draw kids out? So one of my favorite passages in scripture when we're talking about this is Proverbs 25, where it says, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight or understanding draws them out. And that's kind of the premise of the book, that we need to be much more thoughtful, wise, and skilled at drawing children and teens out. And so the whole book is kind of talking about uh, how to do that. How do you draw kids out well? How do you draw teenagers out well? How do you involve parents, which is going to be really helpful for ministry leaders too. So I talk about it as a counselor, but it's really any parent can use this. As a matter of fact, I've been really encouraged how many parents have told me they're using the book uh, with their own children. That's wonderful. That's exactly what we want to do. Um, but it's really for the ministry worker as well, who just wants to be better at, at helping engage children to draw them out, what's going on in their heart, and to speak back in thoughtfully. Mm. And, and this is exactly, folks, the kind of wisdom that we're trying to, to tap into here today, and I know we will. And I talked with Julie uh, before we decided to do this particular podcast about the types of things that we're seeing on a lot of the youth ministry forums and groups on Facebook that, and, and those of you who are in those, you, you know which ones I'm talking about. I'm in there and I will sometimes post and monitor and ask questions. And one of the, the trends that we're seeing is in this rapidly changing world, more and more youth workers are posting questions about specific situations with students and with families that relate to a lot of the issues that are unique to our times, and then how do we engage with our students on these, you know, things like disordered eating, substance abuse, sexuality, gender questions, you know, what do we do about reporting? Do we ever talk to parents? When do we go to our superiors? How do we find referrals? All sorts of things like that. And I thought it'd be helpful to chat with Julie about that today. So I, I threw a little line out into the pond on some of the forums over the last couple of weeks where I let people know we were going to be talking to Julie, and several of you got back to us with far too many, there's far too many uh, particular questions and, and cases that we can ask about. But as I looked at these, I found that they've they've dropped into about seven different buckets, and, and we're going to throw some of these at Julie. Uh, the first one being, you know, how do I have one-on-one conversations with students? How do I draw them out? Which, obviously, counselors counselors are well-trained at that. How do we support, secondly, struggling kids and families? Third, what about policies? You know, what are the good policies we need to establish uh, for ourselves and and then with our volunteers? Fourth, uh, some specific questions about borders and boundaries in ministry, and and those really have changed over the years. We've gotten much wiser and and out of necessity, more careful on those things. Uh, fifth, reporting. Sixth, confidentiality. And, and even when do I, I go to parents? I'm really interested in hearing more about that. A lot of questions on that. And then lastly, referrals. So, uh, Julie, let's, let's, let's start with this whole idea of one-on-ones with students. And I want to read this particular question that came in uh, from one of the youth works. It says this, there's a hard-to-define category in youth ministry that's often called a one-on-one. It's not a counseling session. It's not a regular meeting for discipleship. It's more of a regular checkup or like the pastoral home visits that were popular in generations past. I've searched for years, haven't found any good training for how to do one-on-one, one-on-ones well in youth ministry. I've developed something to use with my summer interns, but it's far from complete. What wisdom would you have for youth workers on making the most of our one-on-ones? Yeah, so there's, there's, several ways we can answer that right and struggling to know what what do they mean by that is it the structure of it is it more the relational aspect of it but the way you're going to hear me answer all of these these categories is there's a a wisdom there's an umbrella of wisdom discernment that we need to use that scripture calls us to so we all want we all want just the right answer the formulaic approach do this and everything will turn out right and I just think scripture talks much more about the discerning spirit, the man of understanding and insight um, and using wisdom. So I think there's principles and that's what you're going to hear me keep talking about. Here are the principles. Now, wisdom says, how do you apply those principles to your context? So one-to-one in a city context versus uh, a rural context versus a big church versus a small church versus a church that only has one 
youth pastor versus one that has a wealth of uh, staff and volunteers. I mean, those things inform even one-to-ones, right? So you stop and say, well, what's, what's the wisdom issue? Love moves towards people. Love builds relationships. You know, I was just talking about building bridges, this book. It's all about, I want to build bridges with, with children and teens. So my move towards them, but then I also think practically and even out of love for the child, what does safety look like? What does, what does wisdom look like and how I meet with kids and teens? And, you know, do uh, the male volunteers work with, meet with a male, the female with a female, even then there can be new problems we've, we've not discovered until recently. There's all kinds of, man, we could shoot ourselves down and feel hopeless if we put all kinds of structures in place that actually inhibit us from loving kids well and moving into their lives. And so there's the wisdom of doing things wisely, safely, um, publicly. And then there's also the, just the relational dynamic of discipleship. Um, and I'm assuming, uh, which is a big thing to do, but I'm assuming that's what uh, they mean by the question, how do you disciple one-on-one well? How do you move towards young people well? And there's, there's age-old books on discipleship, the cost of discipleship, how to disciple, what discipleship looks like. And that's just really, how do I enter into somebody's life and walk alongside them and love them well? Now there's context. There's what does that look like with teenagers? And how do I do that wisely that respects parents' authority and position? How do I do that safety-wise? And um, then I'm always doing it in some ways in a public context. You know, is it smart to always be meeting at a Starbucks or a coffee shop or in public or that there's a checks and balance that another youth leader knows I'm meeting with this student and here's where I'll be. And there can be always somebody who walks by and sees what we're doing. Like there's just a, I'm above reproach in the way I minister to the student. So there's those two ways of answering. Wisdom says, how do I love and move towards people? And it also says, now, what does safety look like as an adult meeting with a young person? What does safety look like for that child? What does um, being above reproach look like for myself? And that my own character can't be questioned. Um, and what does good ministry look like in the context we're in? That's good. I, you, you mentioned parents there, and that that jumped out at me along with a bunch of other things that you said. But when we engage with our students one-on-one, what kind of communication should we have with parents? Uh, and, and I'm not thinking here about, at this point, you know, we'll get to this, students who we discover are engaged in maybe dangerous behaviors, have made poor choices, have a, have a, uh, you know, just a, a sin issue that they're dealing with over and over again. But I'm thinking more just laying the groundwork for developing a good relationship as a youth worker with moms and dads, you know, to, yeah, what do we, I'm not, I'm not sure how to ask it in any other way, but you know, is, yeah. there, is there a way to communicate with them as we enter into this relationship with their son or daughter? that yes. would foster deepened deepened health and relationships all the way around. Yes, and, and boy, I can get on a soapbox here. So Well, that's can, good. I Go ahead and do that. That ra- would be great. Rain me yeah. in. One of, one of the flaws I see in a lot of ministry to children and teens is the lack of parental involvement. Now, being a parent myself, sometimes that falls on parents for their unwillingness to be involved, right? Um, they just want to send kids to youth, um, to youth groups and not be involved in what's happening there. And actually what I'm arguing is any good children's ministry and youth ministry should also be equipping parents. So parents are sometimes part of the problems, which is what many of the questions uh, that we face are, right? You know, how do I deal with parents that aren't parenting well or absent or relinquish their parenting or abuse their parenting? But regardless, parents may be part of the problem, but they always have to be part of the solution. And in any good ministry, any good youth minister or children's minister needs to help equip parents. Parents are the primary counselors of their children, primary disciplers. As a counselor, as a youth pastor, as a children's ministry, we come alongside the family to educate it and build it up and support it. 
And how do we do that best? We do that by equipping parents. And you see very few youth organizations that are investing in resources for parenting, seminars for parenting, relationship with parenting, and those that are so thankful you are. That is so vital. And I see that in counseling. I mean, it's so easy for a counselor, Christian or non-Christian, to have this mentality, I'm the expert, let me do my work. And I leave the parent out of the process where I should be equally equipping the parent to know how to love their child better. So there's this overarching principle, right? Wisdom, biblical principle that we are a support to the family system, which means parents have to some degree be involved, even if involved mean I'm challenging and confronting and working with parents to help them be a better parent. So you have a simple question like, well, what, what does that mean for one-to-one? It means of course, parents should know their children are meeting one-to-one with, with volunteers, a youth ministry. There should be, everything should be above board. There should be no reason to hide that. Um, and the only reason it becomes a current concern is when parents are mis, misusing their authority, abusing their children. Obviously, those fall into new categories. I think the wisdom issue is we, we come alongside families. And so how is it that we're leaving parents out of the process? Mm. That's that's really good. You make, you make me think about uh, one of my longtime friends in youth ministry, Wayne Rice, who was one of the founders of Youth Specialties. You know, he was, he was resourcing, uh, his organization was resourcing me and thousands of other youth workers back in the 1970s and the 1980s. And I remember, you know, just, just the immature attitude I had when I first started out in youth ministry full-time as a recent college graduate was, you know, here I am. I know your kids. I'm going to work with your kids. You should be happy I'm here. I mean, it was just completely arrogant and off base and really discounted in so many ways the, you know, just the, the God's order and design for yeah. spiritual nurturing, God's order and design for relationships and how the faith is communicated. So Wayne, you know, who was resourcing us, he wrote a book a few years ago called Youth uh, Youth Ministry Revisited Again. I think that was the title of it. We'll get it right, and we'll put a link to it there. But in that, you know, Wayne, in his older years, was calling out his younger self and all of our younger selves who were so arrogant in that and said, look, you know, the bottom line is we, we messed up. Family ministry, mm-hmm. c- caring for parents, as you've said, respecting parents, not undermining the authority of parents, understanding the position of parents was... Uh, something we missed, and 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 we need to recover that, and and redeem youth ministry in so many ways as we look at family ministry. So that's good. I like that. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you. Uh, let, let's just move a little bit further into this with families. How can we best support kids who are who are struggling in their families? Uh, someone said this. Said you know I have a student who's been struggling with an eating disorder for months. They have regular appointments with doctors, psychiatrists. What's my role as the youth pastor? What are the spiritual issues at play? How can I best support this family with this longer struggle? So it's really a question about how we come in and walk alongside students and families when they're really into it deep with tough stuff. Yeah, well, you take an issue like eating disorders, and you can have three different families with teenagers who are struggling with an eating disorder, and how you walk alongside them could vary. Why? Because the circumstances vary. Um, But as this person is pointing out, there are multiple professionals involved. So what what's my job? Well, your job is what it's always been and what you will do exceptionally well is by discipling, that you walk alongside that teenager and you really seek to know them well, to say you're there for them, to be supportive of the parents and to draw out what's going on in their heart. So typically with eating disorders, there's a a varied approach to what's happening, control issues, loss of control, body image issues, abuse. There can be multiple factors underneath it, but as Proverbs 20 says, a man of understanding draws it out, that I want to understand what's going in the heart so that I can walk alongside and and point them to the God who sees and knows them, to the God who enters into their world and their experience and can help them grow. That's what youth ministers thrive at doing and should thrive at doing really well. 
then there's just the practical needs of when when does a female volunteer offer to go to a therapy session or a group counseling session just to be a support to the teen? When do they come alongside the parents and offer them resources and, and articles or books that may help? Or they're just a listening ear? Or maybe they're coming alongside the sibling who is also in the youth ministry to help them deal with a sibling who has an eating disorder, who is getting a lot of attention, and the sibling's feeling alone and isolated. That's the wisdom of what does the context require? Um, and they have, they have a wealth more to offer sometimes than the professional world does because they enter into people's lives in ways professionals don't. They remain kind of detached and objective. Yeah, I think about the way that, that in youth ministry, you know, we're really called to teach God's will, God's way, God's word, uh, God's order and design for things, and that you know, the culture, we say, obviously, the culture's catechizing kids 24-7, and certainly in a social media world, um, issues related to, you know, body image and disordered eating, those things are just off the charts. We knew yeah. nothing about those things, you know, three, four decades ago, for those of us who were, you know, boots on the ground in youth ministry, we just weren't even aware. Now everybody is aware of those things because of that, because we know how the culture is catechizing kids with messages that undermine uh, their flourishing. And, and because we know these things are, are going viral and, and becoming epidemic, I'm sure you're seeing so much of it. Are there specific issues that you would say to the youth workers and the parents who are listening, you know, before this is an issue, just be aware the culture is teaching your kids these things here's what you need to talk about from a biblical perspective as part of your your nurture and your training. Are there particular issues that you would point to? Oh man, I can the list can go way too long, but you're you're hitting on it and it's things that I've even heard on your podcast recently, things like where your identity is found and your sexual identity. Kids are taught to have to discern sexual identity at obscenely young ages. Um, and question it. It's that moral relativism that enters in and tells us that man, it's man's truth, not God's truth. And then that breaks down every, every issue. It breaks down the relationships. And actually, that's probably where I'd start. I am most concerned with the lack of adult, mature adult relationships in children's lives for multiple reasons. But you, you brought technology in, and technology, what technology's done that most people aren't talking about is it's allowed peer-to-peer uh, -peer influence 24 hours a day now, or at least there were periods of breaks where parents had more influence, the church had more influence. Now youth pastors are fighting having teens put their social media down while they're with them and engaging with them. So any adult trying to enter into a child's experience has an uphill battle because you do have the the world pressing in in every way informing how to think and it's a value system that is aggressively pursuing our kids yeah so identity materialism all those things become issues hey before we take a break a very practical question from prompted by something you said there you're a mom you're a counselor what would you say to youth workers about social media and phones during a youth meeting, during a weekend retreat, uh, during a Bible study, whenever students are gathered together for the context of being with their peers in the youth group, are, is there, are there any recommendations you would make? You get a safe and you put them in there until it's all done, until the activity's over, the retreat's over. I mean, really, how do you, how do you capture their attention if, if you don't do that? So that sounds silly, but I actually yeah. know a lot of great uh, youth ministries that are doing that. They're checking the phones at the door. They're putting it in a box, and they're saying at the end of the hour and a half, you get it back when you want it. Um, and there's something really helpful about doing that because you only have them for a brief period of time. And during that time, we don't even have them anymore. Yeah. So it's capturing their attention and their hearts again. It's, it's being an influence in their life. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm in the midst of uh, the drudgery of grading papers for 40 students from a, a, a program I teach in up in Canada. They're, they're uh, undergrad students and graduate students. And, 
it, it I, the drudgery's been relieved because I'm hearing and seeing some wonderful things in these papers. Mm-hmm. One's a response paper to Chris and I have talked about this to uh, Tony Ranke's book, Twelve Ways Your Phone Is Changing You, yeah. and they had to read that book, and they had to you know say okay in their paper you know here are the top three things out of the 12 that Tony lists that I'm seeing in my students. Here are the top three that I see in myself. And then they have to follow up and write a pastoral letter to their students about their social media and technology use, you know, just out of care, concern, and love, modeled on like a New Testament letter. And it it has been interesting to me to see, and we're going to follow up on this with a podcast with some of our students, that the number one issue with overwhelmingly with students, with their students, and then also with the adult youth leaders themselves is distraction. It, that is number one, you know, across the board. It's just, it's just right up there at the top. And so I think your, your advice here is wise. And, and I would say this, that once youth workers do this and you get past the initial protests, uh, kids are going to say, wow, that was something like I never imagined could even happen. They're going to see the joy of that because of, of what they've been made for. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back, continue our conversation with Julie Lowe. If you enjoy listening to Youth Culture Matters and would like to support the ongoing efforts of this ministry, you can do so by visiting cpyu.org giving to make a donation. Your prayers and financial support make this podcast possible. Well, we're continuing our conversation with Julie Lowe here. Julie is a counselor with years and years of experience. She's written extensively. We've got links to all of her books, and we also want to send you to the website for CCEF, the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, where Julie is a counselor. And there are lots and lots of blog posts there that are very helpful, links to videos, many of them by Julie and and, uh, numerous others by her colleagues who are working there at CCEF. What a wonderful resource that is. And we're tapping into to Julie Julie's wisdom today based on a lot of the questions we've heard from youth workers. And certainly in this segment, I think it's important for us to hit on a topic that I'm hearing it's being asked about a lot. And that's the issue of policies in today's world. We're much more aware of the need for policies, to have good policies. And then related to that, you know, borders and boundaries. Julie, just generally speaking, if uh, if I'm new and I'm stepping into a youth ministry, I have volunteers under me, I have students in the ministry. What and even just with my own my own conduct and and borders and boundaries, understanding that we're all broken people. What are some of the the general policies that you would recommend? a youth worker set up and adhere to? Yeah. Um, Well, I'm not sure if this would be called a policy or not, but I think training, 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 because training produces conversation that produces questions that produces, hey, I had a situation like this. So that's one of the places where policies, when you have, for example, I go out to churches and I'll do mandated reporter trainings or talk about some of these things in churches, and it will inevitably bring up questions or actually resistance, which is really helpful. Um, it's helpful to hear youth youth uh, volunteers go, "Well, this is crazy. You mean I'm not allowed to meet one on one with a with a student, or you mean I can't do that without telling a parent?" Um, and you have these policies are born often out of bad things happening. Um, and I'd rather policies be born out of proactive care, that we're really thinking thoughtfully before bad things happen, so that if a bad thing happens, we are more than prepared to know what to do with it. But sadly, that doesn't happen unless you talk about it. And who talks about it until it's a problem, and now you need to talk about it. So you see this cycle effect that happens in ministries where we're reactive rather than proactive. So proactive policies are starting a conversation saying, we acknowledge these things are problems in ministry. We acknowledge these things can happen. We acknowledge the need to understand mandated reporting. 
the the pendulum then swings to well now everything is fear-based so we have policies because i never want to be accused or i never want a child to be alone with people and then love gets squelched by fear um, and that's not what we want either so good policies are thoughtful proactive um, they're meant to be followed but you also understand that there are places where where love trumps a policy and i'm not sure that's a helpful conversation to have right now but an example of that would be a policy should be hey if there's a youth retreat and there's one student left over um, does only one youth minister or volunteer stay with them or do two stay with them or you know if it's a female staff member and a male child or vice versa and what happens if the parent never shows up what happens if the parent says my car broke down can you drive my child home and a volunteer or youth minister might say no way no how not doing it um, and I would say well wait a minute that, this is an emergency situation doesn't love say yes of course I'll do this but what precautions can I put in place you know what mom how about you stay on the phone as I'm driving your son or daughter home how about I call my wife and we have her on the phone as we're driving there like policies should be followed please hear me say that but i also don't want them to be driven by fear you want them to be driven by love and grace and when that is done then you find yourself in these precarious situations sometimes where you think well no i can't i can't do this because it's not policy and wisdom says well how can we make this safe and, and right and good so good policies going back to that is you often hear the two adult rule you hear an open door policy you hear checking in and here's what gets tricky that again context matters because you can have a small church a big church with bigger youth ministry lots of rooms lots of doors bathroom facilities for children we we can't have a one-size-fits-all policy but we can have really good principles so you have organizations like ministry safe that's in texas where they they train churches um, they talk about these things. They go into particular ministries and say, let's look at where your weaknesses are. Let's look at what policies would help you. Um, and it's, it's a wisdom approach that says there's principles to follow our safety skills of being wise. So for example, we know children are most at risk. Teens are most at risk when somebody has access to them, when they can get them out of public view. Um, so for policy's sake, I want to say, well, as a, as a volunteer, somebody ministering to kids, then I always want to know somebody knows what I'm doing. I'm always in whatever degree I can be publicly present. So I could be sitting at a coffee shop with a teenager, my spouse or another youth minister can know, or the parent knows, here's where we're going. You can check in at any time. Um, there's, there's just this open above reproach posture that I'm taking. And then I, I structure the policies around it. So um, would I ever take a teenager to my home? Would I ever um, have them alone in a car? Maybe not, maybe. And what would be the reasons that would be acceptable to do that? Policies are built around thinking through those type of situations with people. Um, so if you're having a good understanding of reporting laws, you're having a good understanding of grooming, like how how people who mistreat kids work, then you're gonna have a better understanding of why we have the policies we have. But volunteers will not understand that unless you have conversation. Conversation won't happen unless you have training. So that brings me all the way back to the beginning of saying, you've gotta have conversation upon conversation because people who have never experienced these things believe you're overreacting. They believe they don't happen. They believe you're you're being fear mongering instead of saying, no, we just want to be proactive. Let's mm -hmm. think this through. Let's understand what some of the problems could be. Yeah. Some, some of the proactivity needs to relate to how we recruit and train and, and at the beginning vet uh, yes. our volunteers. And yes. I'm hearing more and more stories of, oh my goodness, we had a volunteer do this. I wish I had known. I wish I had been you know, take taking more precautions or had known what to look for. Do you have any suggestions on that sort of on the front end of, yeah. you know, vetting volunteers? Because it would seem to me, I mean, I, I think about this now in the context that we live in, that someone who, 
you know, is a predator, we'll use that word, and, mm-hmm. and knows how to groom kids, you know, obviously one of the easy places to go would be, you know, like a youth sports league or, a, you know, helping in a local school or obviously in a youth group situation. So mm-hmm. are there, is there anything you can say to us about that I, I, in your mandatory reporting training yeah. and seminars? Yeah, well, the good thing about mandated reporter training is, you know, almost every ministry now is doing background checks. The flaw in that is we think we're safe by doing the background checks, right? Instead of understanding that a majority of predators don't get caught till hundreds of victims later, or it doesn't, doesn't know the heart of an individual going into it, doesn't know their motive. Now, um, think about it though, if we're having these kind of trainings, what we're doing is we're fostering a conversation that says this is an issue important to us. If we're doing that, I talk about uh, speaking about it from the pulpit, meaning just from the public forum, a church or a ministry that speaks a lot about safety, that says we take seriously reporting, we take seriously grooming behaviors, we take seriously people that are not respecting our policies, puts everybody on high alert. Now, if you have a volunteer coming in who's a predator, he is going to have to work a hundred times harder to deceive everybody, or he's just going to give up and say, well, this is, a, this is going to be a hard context. I'm going to go someplace else. Now also take the adult who either doesn't take it seriously or is just socially inappropriate and awkward or doesn't have wisdom. When you have those type of trainings, what's gonna happen with a person like that? They're gonna, they're gonna kind of out themselves, meaning they're gonna say inappropriate things. They're gonna debate you. They're gonna say, that seems silly. Why do we have to do that? And any ministry leader is gonna be able to vet that. They're gonna by nature of just having conversations, people expose how they think and who they are. And so it is a great vetting process just by asking people, what would you do if you thought somebody was being abused? Have you ever known a teenager that you suspected was being abused? What were the signs? Um, and it reveals all types of people when you ask those questions. It shows how insightful some are, how oblivious others are, how willing to, to accept that as a possibility some people are. It becomes a great vetting menu or avenue when we have conversations and training earlier rather than later. Mm. I had a youth worker come to me and say, hey, I've got suspicions about somebody. I don't have any, you know, hard evidence. There's, there's no trail for me to look at. You know, this wouldn't stand up in court. It's just a suspicion. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and they said to me, what, what would you do? And uh, my suggestion was, you know, that to have a conversation with that person's superior just to say, hey, I've got nothing here. But, you know, people are talking. There's lots of questions being asked. I don't know if I advised well or not, but how would you advise somebody who's uh, a youth worker who maybe has some suspicions? Where do you, where do you go with that? Yeah, I would say, well, what you said is great. And I would also add the most important thing you can do without proof is to notice and to make other people notice. So sometimes grooming behaviors are just people who are being kind and loving to kids. I mean, it's hard to discern the motive, um, but you watch behavior. We're notoriously bad at evaluating character. We're far worse at it than we think we are but we can be very good at evaluating behavior. And that's one of the key principles I teach. Evaluate behavior, not character. Character blurs our ability and changes how we see behavior. But if I look at behavior and I say, you know what, that person's just awfully touchy-feely with the kids. That makes me uncomfortable. Hasn't molested a child. I can't say anything else other than that. I can say, I'm uncomfortable. Well, then I'm going to bring other people in to pay attention and say, this is behavior that I want to notice. I want you to notice, too. Not accusing them of anything. I'm just saying, strikes me as not comfortable, not appropriate. Let's all notice it. And we all have eyes on it. And so what you do is you're bringing in a culture of people paying attention. Could it just be an inappropriately handsy volunteer? Yes. But then eventually that needs to be confronted. Could it be somebody with more sinister intent? Yes. And eventually that needs to be confronted. And sooner than later, whether the person has ill intent or not, noticing and helping them see that you're noticing now keeps everybody safer because that person knows they're being watched. Mm. And so it's a no-lose situation when we are willing to just notice and call it that. 
Let me ask, that's good. Let me ask about students, kids who come to our youth group, because increasingly we are going to have students who, you know, they've got, they're young, but they, they already have things in their short past where they've perpetrated uh, some of the inappropriate behaviors you've talked about here. And, you know, we, on the one hand, we have to understand you know, the developmental realities, and this is someone who's young and impressionable and vulnerable and who knows what's going on in their life so far, but, you know, they've, they've obviously done something sinful, incredibly foolish. They've stepped over, over a line. They've gotten themselves in trouble, but we also want to show them grace, and we don't want to disqualify them from being able to participate in our ministries as they grow and as God does work in their lives. You know, I'm sure you're dealing with this in your counseling. These are the kids that you're, many of them that you're spending time with. What is their place? How do we make a place for them? And I know it's a case-by-case situation, but generally speaking, can you give us some, just some parameters to, to think about here to spring off of so that we can make some good, wise decisions about how to include them yeah so i am i am seeing increasingly exponentially child on child molestation or teen on child molestation or sibling on sibling molestation that is just growing and again you can look at some of that as the more our children have access to pornography and all kinds of evil the more they don't know where to go with it they don't know what to do with it they are going to reenact it themselves that's very different than a 40-year-old man who's molesting a child. The, the impact can be the same, but the intent and what is actually occurring can be different with a child. So a 12-year-old who molests a sibling has the same impact on that child as a 40-year-old who's molesting with different intent and understanding. So why is that important? because it helps inform how do I treat that 12-year-old who just made a grievous mistake, um, a sinful mistake? Um, How do I understand it? And we're always trying to evaluate that. But that aside, what's still important for you and I is we're always saying we have to evaluate present safety and future harm. So is this 12-year-old likely to do this again? How do we keep everybody safe right now, including the 12 or the 15-year-old? Um, And what's the potential for future harm? So for lack of better language, was it a crime of opportunity? Was it a immature, um, impulsive moment that was not thought out? They had no idea the ramifications or implications of what they were doing. Or was it cunning, conniving, manipulative, intentional? Well, wow, if that's going on, then I am going to treat it um, differently as well. So all those things inform, how do I keep people safe now? So we can either overreact or underreact given what is going on in the moment. But if present safety, future harm is something we're always considering, then I'm going to look at and say, if this was, uh, if this was an isolated situation that happened outside ministry settings, do I have to be afraid of this child in the ministry setting? It's a good question. Mm. Present safety, is there a concern that they're unsafe now? Now I also have to ask future harm. Is it potential that they grow to do this more or are they getting help? Are we providing help and resources now to prevent future harm? Now, and this is where I, I, I kind of wonder, this is great advice. I, I kind of, I'm putting myself in the place of the youth pastor and I'm wondering now, okay, so I go through all these things and, and I evaluate this. There's still this history, these mm-hmm. things happened but I want to integrate this young person into our youth group because the gospel is big, and I want to see them have opportunities to grow in their faith. But that, but, but, but what happens with, you know, like a year down the road, you have the parent of someone else who comes and goes, hey, I knew nothing about this, mm-hmm. and you allowed this young person to come into our youth group, and, you, you know, you should have told us, is there, is there some kind of... I'm not sure what I'm asking. You know, is it, is is there yeah. a step I can take as a youth worker to get everyone involved to see and not undermine or skirt the authority of the parents of the other kids in the group? You know, how do I right. 
I and again, I know every case is different, so it's unfair of me to ask this question. Well, but I'm asking. <laughs> right. Well, this is the debate among professionals, even. So there will be professionals who may disagree with this, but I, I, I tend to think about this a lot because I do see a lot of overreacting, meaning harsher things. It's handled in harsh ways, and I see a lot of underreacting, thinking, "Oh my goodness, you should have told more people." So that's what complicates this, right? Um, but one of the things I say is when you evaluate a situation and you say. Uh, we, we can speak as confidently as one can speak that everybody is presently safe because we've put in structures to keep them safe. So this young person can stay in this ministry setting because we've created a safety net where we know he is monitored, he's not alone, he or she, um, these things are set in place. And we also know that future harm is very low. Why? Because there's counseling, because the parents have taken this seriously, because they're being held accountable, because the child themselves has self, they, they self-confessed, you know, they brought this up themselves. All those things shape why I could say to a parent who comes to me later, you should have told me. And I can say, actually, here's why we believed we shouldn't have told you, because here were all the factors that proved that we did everything the right way, uh, as much as it's within our grasp too. Yeah. Um, and then there's situations where the child potentially has harmed other people in the youth group or has the possibility of still having access to kids if we don't tell all the parents in the youth group. So we're gonna tell all the parents because it's our job to first provide immediate safety, present safety. Um, so that's kind of the way I think about it. To what degree our goal is never just to protect the child who is 15, who did this bad event, but that is a factor. Our goal is to say, is everybody safe in this context? Mm. And what does that look like? Can we guarantee it? And that's, that to me seems like that's a, those are decisions that need to be made in consultation and, and yes. under the authority of the larger church leadership, not just those in the youth ministry who sit Correct. amongst themselves and say, hey, how do I deal with this? Yeah. And that's yeah. good to do that is good protection for the person in youth ministry. One more one more quick question. Something you said raised another question before we take a break. Um, you said he you were, you were saying he and then you said he or she. Right. Are you seeing um, I, I would guess, you know, from what we hear and what we know, my my layman's understanding would be that when it comes to abusive behavior and predators, the scales would tip more towards the male side. Is that changing? Is that evening out? What are you seeing there? And do we need to be diligent, obviously, as well, or maybe more so now because we've thought otherwise with our female uh, volunteers as well? Yeah. Well, statistically, it is, it's not politically correct, but certainly statistically correct that it tends to be more men than women. However, when it is female or women, it's equally as grievous and, um, yeah, impactful. Um, and I say male and female, too, because I think when you're talking about teenage behavior, if you put molestation aside, both male and female are doing incredibly manipulative, destructive things. And so to manipulate another child and the way girls bully or manipulate or do things online is... I think equal to what a lot of boys do. So the self-destructive to the other destructive behavior outside of molestation tends to be equally male and female. And some might even argue girls are so much more dangerous in that in that vein. You know, guys will go beat each other up behind the school where girls will go online and do really destructive things to each other. Mm. Boy, this is so good. So so much to think about. Well, we're having a conversation with Julie Lowe. We're going to take a break, come back, and finish up. I often hear grandparents say how glad they are that they don't have to raise kids in today's world. While these comments might not be very encouraging to those of us who are parents or who are doing youth ministry with kids today, they do recognize the fact that there are lots of confusing and dangerous cultural realities that kids need to navigate if they are going to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. In an effort to provide parents and youth workers 
with an easy-to-use tool designed to help kids find their way through the choices they face in today's world, I've written a new little book that can be used individually or in small groups, A Student's Guide to Navigating Culture. It's the shortest book I've ever written, but it's the one I believe will have the greatest impact in terms of discipling the emerging generations. If you want to teach your kids how to live in today's culture while following God's will and way, check out this new little book, A Student's Guide to Navigating Culture. You can learn more and order copies at cpyu.org. So as we continue our conversation with Julie Lowe, I just want to remind everybody, you know, A, thank you for listening, but B, you know, pass on the word about this Youth Culture Matters podcast. We'd love to have you subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts and share it with people. Give us a good rating. It seems that everybody says that about their podcasts now, but that is important. And certainly when we're talking with someone like Julie, it's good to, you know, to share the wisdom with others, get them tapped into this. And so... Uh, we want to remind you who are listening that everything we've talked about here today in terms of resources and, you know, books, articles, websites, so forth and so on, we will have all of that uh, in the player notes uh, or in the episode notes for this particular episode. If you go to cpyu.org, look for this particular podcast and the player for it and just scroll down underneath and we'll have the links to all those things. So Julie's been really giving us some some just great advice and insights into some of the unique situations that we face in today's world and man counseling is is a uh, that's a growth industry isn't it julie i i just sadly uh, yes yeah yeah and uh, boy it just makes us all of this makes us long for the new heavens and the new earth when mm-hmm. no more tears no more crying no more disease mental health issues just uh, we look so forward to that but in this in-between time you know those of us who are doing youth ministry we we deal with these things these are the the messy issues of life and that's really what i want to ask about now is when we have the curtain peeled back when a student decides in conversation with us to peel back the curtain and show us and tell us what is going on in their lives what is our responsibility then to in terms of communicating with parents you know we don't want to undermine the authority of parents we want to respect that and i think functionally we we can say that philosophically but this is where functionally it becomes very important and so i want you to talk about that a bit julie and i know you're a counselor and i'm sure it's different for you as a counselor than it would be for somebody in youth ministry but give us some advice and maybe if there's a line there like okay up until this line it's okay just to to maintain confidentiality with the student and for the student but maybe there's a line that's crossed and when when is it important for us and necessary required of us uh, to, to go and talk to parents yeah well before I answer that let me go back to something I said earlier and that is the need to build bridges and relationships with parents in youth ministry and if we're doing that then the very first thing I can do that will help me in that way is by asking parents that question so if I'm having regular parent meetings or I'm getting to know parents individually if I have the ability to that's a question I would ask them as a youth minister or volunteer I would say things like what are the non-negotiables if your kids were struggling with something what would be the non-negotiables I need to know I must know at whatever cost what would be the things you'd say you know what i trust you i trust that you are going to work with them help them and get them to tell me or help them work through those things i don't need to know those things and even as a counselor i do that but as a ministry leader it's far easier to build relationship with parents in ways that parents may they may give me space to say you know what i would want to know if my child were having sex but if you are working with them and they're they're of battling that out with you and they're trusting you and they're growing, you know what, I could back off and not know that for a period of time. Um, Or maybe some parents would say, no, if my child was having sex with their boyfriend or girlfriend, I'd want to know immediately. That's a no, no wiggle room for that or drugs, alcohol, addiction. Um, 
So building relationship with parents means sometimes I already know what parents are going to give me leeway to work with and what they're going to say, no, I, I must know this and you need to tell me. And how do I respect and honor that if that's the case? Now, that said, once you've, you've done some of that work or you may know or you may not know because you don't know the parent personally, then what I'm using to evaluate goes back to something I said earlier, and that's present safety, future harm. Is this child presently safe? So they, they say, Julie, I just cut myself, or Julie, I, I was taking drugs last week or yesterday. And I can look at them and they're currently safe. They're not in harm's way. Maybe I know that they're, um, they're fine. I see the injury, so I'm concerned, I'm worried. But it's not a, I need to report this right away to somebody, to the parents, to authorities, whoever. Now what I also have to evaluate though is what's the potential for future harm? Meaning they're saying, yeah, I'm gonna do this again, or yeah, I have plans tomorrow, or no, I'm not giving up the cutting. And as a matter of fact, I'm taking it a step further. That tips the scales to say, the potential for future harm is great. I've got to tell somebody, whether it's an authority, a parent, another youth pastor. So current safety, present safety, future harm are always a good way of stopping right away and saying, is there a safety issue? And it will, or will there be a safety issue if I don't tell somebody? So that becomes non-negotiable. It kind of becomes an easy thing. Sadly for all of us, it's never really that easy. There's always this gray line of, well, I know they're cutting. I know they say they're, they have suicidal thoughts, but they're telling me they don't have a plan. When does it tip the scale over? Um, and it's both a wisdom issue, but a very practical, if a child's saying they're suicidal, somebody else needs to know, they need to get help. You need to refer, you need to bring people in as, and you're not the only one helping the student. So sometimes it's a child's doing marijuana. Sometimes it's occasionally marijuana. Now it's a regular marijuana use. And now they're also adding another risky behavior, um, like stealing or driving crazy or now they're taking another drug on top of that drug so where youth leaders and where we find ourselves stuck is now the behaviors start to increase so before i could say all right there was no current safety issues or future harm now they're rising and so sometimes there's a threshold we cross um and that's why it's always helpful for a teenager. What I'm almost always doing with a child or teenager is I'm trying to get them to invite other people in at any cost. So they're telling me, but whenever I can build bridges with them to talk to a parent or to talk to a aunt or uncle or talk to another youth leader, I'm bringing more resources in, I'm bringing more eyes in on it. The threshold of reporting to either the authorities or parents is when there are safety issues for sure. And then the, all the other stuff kind of becomes wisdom issues. If, if a youth worker is struggling to navigate this, and I'm thinking specifically perhaps of a youth worker who's uh, less experienced and younger or yes. maybe older and less experienced with these types of issues, as you try to evaluate everything that you've just given us to evaluate, would you recommend going to the church leadership as well and saying, hey, I'm trying to navigate this. Could you help me navigate it well? And I, I, you know, I know in some situations that would be really helpful. And in other situations, depending on the church culture, it might be somewhat destructive. I, you know. I... Right. Well, this goes to policy, right? Where I probably would say, especially when you have younger and experienced volunteers that having a policy that requires them to bring in or to always be communicating that to the, the head of the ministry. So the youth pastor. So if it's a volunteer, especially an inexperienced volunteers, a good policy might be, listen, if any of these kind of behaviors uh, show up in any of our kids, I need to know right away. That doesn't mean I assume we're telling parents right away or heads of higher ups right away, but it does assume somebody else has to have eyes on this, especially when you're, you're training and equipping younger people because they lack the ability sometimes to see uh, the future harm. Mm -hmm. So that's policy becomes important there. Yeah. You know, just to back up a minute, one of the things you said that really caught my attention was, you know, in, in terms of uh, speaking to parents about this, so much of the the work of relationship building needs to happen 
right out of the gate. You're you're yes. doing everything you can to build relationships with these parents, even if you're not aware of any issues. And I think about one of our guys here who's on our uh, the Word and Youth Ministry podcast, Kyle Hoffsmith, who is out at a church in Ohio. And uh, I, I, there's been several occasions where I've had to call Kyle, and it, you know it's gone to you know, to voicemail or whatnot, and he gets back to me, and I'm, I'm insulted. Why didn't Kyle answer my phone call, you know? And Kyle will get back to me and say, hey, I'm sorry I couldn't take that call. Uh, all this week I'm involved in parent conferences. And I'm mm. thinking, man, what a, what a great, wonderful thing to do, you know, kind of like yes. we have with the schools, the parent-teacher conferences. And, you know, I always – I always remember, you know, this is what I remember about my dad. He would go to those parent-teacher conferences, and he would jokingly say as a way to invite communication back and forth, he would say to the teacher upon first meeting them, uh, I promise to only believe half of what Walt says about you if you <laughs> promise to only believe half of what he says about me. And, right. you know, I mean, he was joking there, but he was opening the door for that kind of communication back and forth. And really working to build a relationship. And I love that there are youth workers like Kyle who are doing that. That is just so important. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. good. So so let me let me turn the corner here and end with this last question. And it's, you know, the one about referrals. Uh, I've always said to youth workers, don't wait till a situation, you know, arises to know who you're going to send uh, people too, because, you know, in that moment, everybody kind of is in a panic and freezes. And it's difficult to say when, when help is needed immediately, you know, give me a day or two to try to find somebody who can help you. And, mm -hmm. and so I tell youth workers, at least just be aware of what the different situations are. So we've mentioned, you know, disordered eating here. We've mentioned uh, cutting. We've talked briefly about, you know, a student thinking about taking their own life you know, obviously with those things, you, you want to have at, at your fingertips resources that maybe are both helpful to parents in terms of written resources or websites or books or whatnot, but also human resources in terms of the counselors we can send people to immediately in that moment. Because, you know, look, we've been there as parents where, man, we just, it's like, what do we do? and we need help. So can you give us some advice on, on referrals, posturing ourselves to be ready to do that, and how to conduct ourselves in that moment? Yes, I love, I love that proactive nature of saying, here's my list of go-to people when I feel stuck with counseling issues, with ministry issues. So even for a youth pastor to say, listen, you don't have to be an expert in every topic. You don't have to be an expert in reporting issues. You just have to know who the expert is that you can call at any point. I don't have to be an expert in self-injury or suicide. I just need to know who to call to say, what's the next step? So even for the youth pastor themselves or the ministry leader themselves to say, here's my list of five to 10 people I go to for any issues because they'll know who to refer me to next. It's also really helpful to have a referring list, especially if you're in ministry with kids, you want a list of counselors that work with kids and teens and say, these are people that we trust, that we know are skilled. Um, and if they're not available, they'll know who to point us to. So I would love to see a, a youth minister or any ministry leader to say, I want to invite people in to my circle. So I'm not just handing my families or my kids over to some stranger and not knowing if they're giving Christian advice, if they're leading them astray, if they're helping them or not. I actually want to bring people in to love this family well and this child well. And so I'm referring people in rather than referring people out. I'm finding resources to say, you're part of my team now uh, to love this child. You're on the team. Um, I'd love to be able to interact with you to whatever degree the family will, but you're building that network of bringing people in to shepherd and love these kids well. Mm, that's so good. And, and you use terminology there about, you know, referring in or referring out, and we're going to put a link to a really helpful blog post that Julie has on the CCEF site uh, that says, you know, for pastors, and we'll say for youth pastors as well, 
a new perspective on referring out, which will take you a little bit further into that whole concept she just gave here. We've come to the end, Julie. This has been so helpful. And as I often do, you know, we have an audience here of parents and we have an audience of, I'll say specifically, youth pastors right now. Anything you would want to say to them as a, a final word, you know, first to parents and then maybe secondarily to, to the youth pastors? Yeah, as a parent, um, know your, your ministry leaders, know your children's ministry, know your youth pastor. When they don't pursue you, pursue them. Say that you care about your child, you care about having good relationships with, with these ministry leaders. Um, and as a youth leader, man, what I would have done to have youth pastors that came up and introduced themselves and say, I wanna know more about your kids. I wanna understand how I can love them well. You know, to show an active appreciation for a parent's opinion in a culture that diminishes parental authority greatly. What a good thing for the church to say we, we honor it and we want to help equip it the way it should be. Mm, that's a great word. Julie, thank you so much. Uh, this is so helpful. And I, as I, I said at the beginning, we're going to get you back on here in the not-too-distant future to talk about teens and suicide. Um, I'm really interested in what you have to say about that. It's so sad that we have to deal with that so much in today's world, but uh, there is that resource, so folks can check that out. We'll include a link to that as well. Julie, uh, blessings on you and your family as you celebrate Christmas. You as well. We look forward to having you on here again. Everyone who's listening, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you on the next episode of Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.